If you would, please open up with me in your Bibles to Malachi. Uh, Malachi chapter 1 is where we find ourselves by way of introduction while you're opening up there. Uh, uh, Malachi is uh, set up as a question and answer back and forth between God himself through the mouthpiece of his prophet Malachi uh, to the people. Uh, it could be the people at large. It could be through the representatives, uh, that is the priests. And we'll see that uh, today. We'll see that as well uh, in weeks to come. But uh, it, this back and forth, as I mentioned to the younger ones in our midst, uh, can be a little intense. That's true this morning. And yet, with intensity also comes an, uh, an intense, a, a weighty representation of the good news, of the gospel, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, intense does not mean bad, it just means weighty. And the gospel is weighty. It's not light like a feather to blow away. Uh, there is meat uh, to uh, substance to uh, uh, this truth that the Lord has given us. Uh, but, but there's also a reason why the good news had to come. And we'll see a little bit of that. Uh, as I was trying to think, how, how do we get our minds ready? How do we get our hearts ready, our souls ready to intake this word? I thought about my father. And specifically, I thought about my father and I playing catch, baseball. Uh, we're getting close to October. We're not there yet, but uh, some of you baseball fans know what I mean. It's, it's baseball season a little bit, right? Yeah, football's going on. I see you in the back, Mr. Eric. You know, it's baseball season, right? And so we were playing catch when I was a younger guy, and uh, I'm left-handed, and I had a little action on my throw. You know, back and forth, if you have ever played catch, you know what I mean. You kind of get into a rhythm. But left-handed, sometimes you get a little action that you're not used to, and so my dad would kind of drop his glove as the ball dropped a little bit. Not a curve ball, but kind of curving, right? So my dad kept throwing this ball and we kind of were you know just shooting the breeze doing his thing and it turned out to be a little too much action on one and when he dropped his glove he didn't drop it enough and if you notice it hit him in a certain area and my dad went down uh, he went down for a long time actually now he was the assistant coach of our baseball team it was practice and he was out for the night I might say. Uh, in fact, uh, another way to put it, as the head coach said, he used it as a lesson, an object lesson as my dad writhed around on the ground. He said, isn't it easy to take your eye off the ball? And I would go a step further. Isn't it easy for us as people to take our eye off the ball when it comes to what's most important in life? Uh, we are a people who are gathered here this morning to worship God. Uh, we are a people who identify in this congregation as Bible-believing. That is, the full scriptural truths, that which God has given us, that, that we believe that the Lord has revealed himself in, in all his goodness and truth and equity and justice. And we hold to that. And we confess that at least 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock on Sunday morning. But have we taken our eye off the ball? It's an intense question. Depending on where you are in life, it could be offensive. And maybe you need to be offended. Our main point today is that sin gives us a low view of God. That God deserves a high view from us. And thankfully, 
that the Lord Jesus remedies the problem. Let's pray and we'll read God's word. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to put our eye on the ball. Cutting through the illustration, help us to see your truth. Only you by your Holy Spirit can do it. I can't change hearts. We can't change our own hearts. Only you can change hearts. And so, God, we pray, we beg that you would change hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Malachi chapter 1, starting with verse 6. We'll read through verse 14. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God right here, it stands forever. It remains forever. And I, as I know I say it a lot, but I feel like it's very important when it seems like we read bad news, right? That, that we'll have this word in heaven. And so inherently, it must be good. And let's see that this morning. Remember, our main point is that sin gives us a low view of God, that God deserves a high view from us, and that Jesus solves the problem, which is very good news. Three points, also three Ps. I'm trying to help you all out this morning. Problem, pollution, and propitiation. Don't worry if you're nervous about that third one. We'll get there. Problem, pollution propitiation. First then, the problem is plainly presented to us in verse 6. Here, God reveals his relationship to humanity in two ways. I hope you noticed it. A father and a master. As a father, God has brought us into the world in his own image. He has protected and provided for his people. He has loved and looked after the apples 
of his eye. All of these things merit a necessary and obvious need for honor, which is mentioned in verse 6. As a master, like a pot in the hands of a potter, God quite literally owns his creation. He instructs and commands his creation. And the expectation of obedience is natural and logical, which includes a right fear. And by the way, the fear mentioned in verse 6 is not as we use the word now. Our kind of colloquial use of the word fear is cower. We're afraid of something like spiders or something like that. But that's not the reality of what we see with fear in the Bible. Most, most naturally and most typically this word fear brings with it a reverence. And so that which we fear, we revere is a better definition for us. The problem is that not just humanity, not just God's people, but the very spiritual leaders, the representatives of these truths of God as Father and of God as Master and all of the things that, that spawn out from those realities, that, that the spiritual leaders have replaced honor and fear with a despising demeanor towards God, which, like a virus, has caught amongst the people. What the priests are doing here is not so far-fetched. This is not a then problem. It's a now problem. Because what those priests are doing is, is exactly what pastors and ministers do today when they de-emphasize God and His Word, when they cave to whatever is popular, be it theological or practical. Let's fill the pews by saying something popular and condemn people's souls in the process. This is bad news. It is not good. It is what we see in the New Testament uh, being termed false teachers, greed, and pride being the defining factors of those uh, false prophets or false teachers. Sin that is, our choice to go against God and his commands to us necessarily gives us a low view of the Lord. Constantly belittling the Father, questioning the Father, rebelling against the Master reveals our strong and inherent built-in corrupted desire to make little of the Lord. But that is a problem. God deserves a high view from us because he is father of all and master to his creation of which we are a part. Necessarily then, we are ones who do not need to belittle and rebel, but ones who need to heed that which the Lord has spoken. Thankfully, God as father and master has seen fit not to leave us on our own to our own destruction at that point. Rather, God has seen fit to reveal how we might assess and combat the problem. Our first point. And we start by putting our finger on the pulse of it, which is a pollution. That's our second point. Which is a pollution of our worship, 
and our lives after God. This is verses 7, 8, and 9, as well as verses 12 through 14. You'll notice 10 and 11 are kind of sandwiched in for a very, uh, a very good reason. But we see here a pollution. A therapist recently told me, if you can't name it, you can't tame it. Uh, that when you're addressing a problem, if you don't know the problem, how can you address it? It's an enigma. It's floating out here somewhere, always creeping after you. If you can't name it, how in the world do you think you can tame it? God tells his leaders, who are the representatives of his people, how this problem is manifesting. It's very gracious of him. Remember, the problem is no honor and no fear to God. The presentation, the manifestation of that problem is pollution. Pollution to worship and life. An easy definition of pollution is the introduction of harmful contamination. In other words, not only is that which was pure now impure, but that impurity is necessarily harmful. And so it's not as if something just merely changed. Uh, if you go to a certain city, when I mentioned that pollution index, right? And if you've ever experienced it, you know what I mean. It, it's, it's choking. Uh, it really is a difference. And if you see these different articles in these different towns, if you notice statues due to acid rain, you'll know that it, it's harmful contaminant. It's something that brings real harm. And, and so now at this point, as God is not only revealing a problem, as God is, is revealing that this problem is manifesting itself in, in this pollution, this, this word that Malachi uses from, from the very words of God himself as he's extending it to his people, uh, he does us a real favor because here's what we could have done in our sinful nature if we only had verse 6. That is, that there's a problem. We would have said in our sinful minds, oh, this is God's problem, not mine. He's not receiving honor or fear, but that's not on me. <laughs> he can do that and figure it out himself, right? Uh, that, that's what we would initially think. It doesn't affect me. Even though this is God's problem, and maybe for God's people that would be enough, and I hope it would, but, but even if it's just God's problem, we could remove ourselves from the situation at that point and move along on our merry day and not worry about Pastor Jeremiah getting some intense word or something like that, whatever he was saying. I don't have to worry about this. It's God's thing, not mine. Maybe it's his thing. Maybe it's Jeremiah's thing, but not, not mine. But pollution is systematic, isn't it? The harm is comprehensive. That is, affecting all parts. For instance, uh, take a very easy example, uh, the nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl. Uh, Rebecca and I just watched this haunting, haunting show about the realities that played out. And, and that was the thing, right? As, as, this, as this nuclear reactor began to have these severe complications, it in and of itself warped the nature, the ecosystem around it. If you look up the stats from the scientists, it's hundreds and hundreds of years before you can go there without kidding, just totally wiped out. Even now, there are guards placed around. And if you go in, if you get uh, the credentials to go in, you can only go in for a certain amount of time and you've got to take these radiation shots and you've got to get out before you get sick and potentially get cancer or die. 
Isn't that incredible? The whole ecosystem was changed, but that's the point, is that these people who came in to try to do this initial cleanup, they didn't really realize what was going on, and so they would pick up just a regular Bible or hymnal, and the thing would be so radiated that your hand would become radiation. You would become like a little nuclear radioactive person. It affected everything. Systematic pollution, haunting terrifying and spiritually speaking pollution slights yes it offends God and it harms our very souls in the process by warping the reality by by fundamentally uh, seeking to change uh, that which is right and true into that which is wrong that which is harmful and the reality is that it, it at the baseline that it's making little of God and making much of ourselves but God is not just addressing his offense that would be enough remember once again as he always does in every line, including the justice and the equity parts, the ones where we think, are we on the right side or the wrong side of justice? Do we deserve to be punished? And our answer always as Christians is yes, we deserve it. Even in those parts, the hard parts, the intense parts, God reveals his mercy as he seeks to address our problem. He tells us about it. If you can't name it, you can't tame it. But God gives us what's going on. He's merciful, even in his justice. And so what in the world is going on? What is this pollution? The last part of verse 7, corrupt speech. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's absolutely wrong. The saying is wrong. Don't tell my five-year-old that. Don't tell your five-year-olds that. Words hurt and words matter. And we see it in a no less true way than here in God's Word. To speak that which is false and act like it's true is a polluting step toward self-harm. And that's not just spiritually. That's emotionally and physically. Words hurt because words matter. God chose His words to give to us. We dare not lessen the reality of that. Verses 8 and 9, corrupt practices. When it comes to pollution, remember, one thing is never affected. So it's not just words. Remember, it's the system that's affected. So speech is one part of the system, but our practice is another vital part to this puzzle. God commanded sacrifices that were perfect. Oftentimes it is written, and maybe you're familiar with this, if you're familiar with Old Testament terminology, usually it would be written like this, a lamb without blemish. This terminology would transition into the New Testament period. John the Baptist, for instance, who said, look, here comes Jesus. No, he didn't. He said, here comes the lamb. Behold, the lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. This reality of, of a sacrificial lamb, a one without blemish, one that is perfect, of course revealing the Lord Jesus to come and his sacrifice, and yet God commanding these things over and over, and yet what do we do? What do we see? We see lame, blind, and sick animals being offered. 
The best of what we have is being kept for who we think is most important, ourselves. And the worst of what we have, the dregs, is being given over to God. Don't you see how backwards that is? And just to drive the point home, God gives us a strong illustration in verse 8 that helps us to see easily our apathy due to spiritual pollution. I'll take it and expand it. He talks about the governor giving a land to the governor. Why don't you give your blind one to the governor? See what he does. Let's expand that into our lives. Teachers, we have quite a few teachers in our midst. Teachers, this week, go to your schools, but do nothing in your classes. If students ask what's going on, tell them that you're here, that they're here. So what in the world is the big deal? Nurses, which we have quite a few. Nurses, yeah, go to work. Maybe, maybe take some vitals. But beyond that, don't do any charting. That's so annoying anyway. Am I right? Don't do any of the meds. That's just more charting. Don't do any of the patient advocacy or care. Who cares? Doctors, we've got a few doctors. Diagnose, don't diagnose, whatever. Insurance is gonna pay anyways. Lawyers, double your fees, half your time, and profit. That's what everybody says you do anyways. Right? Fathers and mothers, are your children really even that important? My business guys and gals, just do the shady stuff and don't get caught. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Whatever your profession is, retail, admin, or those things that I mentioned, wouldn't it be crazy? Wouldn't it be ludicrous for you to take my advice? Even the world, generally speaking, would agree to the inappropriateness of such calls to our people. But for those of you confessing in the Lord Jesus Christ, has the pollution of this world truly blinded you to your own spiritual apathy? Where we give God the six sacrifices and expect miracles from Him. Have you ever considered then that the disquiet in your own soul is not from yourself and your weakness? It's not from the world around you, those external circumstances pulling and tugging on you. But that it's God Himself grabbing you and gripping you as a dear child and pulling you out of the pollution which is your fault and my fault. And yet God doesn't let His people go. And so have you ever considered that the disquiet that you are experiencing is actually God calling you to task? Maybe even as we sang from Psalm 81, putting you to the test. And if I were to connect that with another part of Scripture, maybe I might connect it with Paul, the Apostle, speaking to that frustrated and sinful church of Corinth when he said, yes, I'm going to put you to the test. But I'm not afraid because I know you'll pass because you are ones who have confessed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But have you even considered it? 
Is your eye on the ball? Or are you so deep into your own disquiet that it has become spiritual depression, which now affects the rest of your life in terrible and drastic ways? But that's the point. God is not against us. God is for us. Extending a hand of salvation even into the darkest and bleakest moments of our life. The free offer of the gospel is what our denomination is founded upon. God himself extending salvation to those who would knock his hand away apart from his own work in our hearts. It's our third point. The propitiation through Jesus, verses 10 and 11. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I know that's a big word, but it's one that you need to know as a Christian. Every Christian needs to know this because it will help us to see the depth and reality of the gospel of Jesus. Propitiation is a big and very important word. It carries the weight of debt payment. At the same time, at the same moment as debts are paid, propitiation carries with it uh, the relational reality, the moment of mediation that becomes reconciliation. And so it's not just debts paid. It's not just relationship restored. It's debts paid and relationship restored at the same time. That's what makes the word so important because it reveals to us the gospel of Jesus in the most beautiful and powerful of ways. Which is why the apostle John would write a letter and this is love. God is love. Everybody loves 1 John 4 for love, 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 love. And what is the foundation of the love? It's the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation. It's the moment where relationship is restored and debt is paid. In the case of humans and God, propitiation through Jesus means that God moves from being against us because of our sins to being for us because our sins have been atoned for, that is paid for, and this is done through the work of Jesus. And so now we come back to our text in Malachi verses 10 and 11 with new eyes and with a new heart recognizing the pollution that is probably and in all likelihood our own fault over the course of many years. And we see what is written here with gospel eyes. Maybe with the eyes of our heart, if I just wanted to keep using Paul's terminology. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. What is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? The good news? The good news is that Jesus came to do something that we couldn't. He lives a perfect life, which we couldn't. He dies a sacrificial death, which we think we could do, but it would have no effect for anyone beyond ourselves. And yet Jesus, in perfection as man, fully God and fully man, then bears the full weight of God's wrath, the full weight of God's wrath, meaning all of our sins individually, each and every one, uh, 
past, present, future. Boom! Bearing down on fully God, fully man, Jesus, who is perfect in this life as man. He has come as a perfect sacrifice then. One without blemish. A pure offering. He has shut the doors of those corrupt places that were only revealing the good news in shadow and sign. The curtain was torn in two, remember, when Jesus was crucified. The veil ripped open and the anchor placed firmly in the most holy of places. For as Jesus does a work on our behalf, we can stand perfectly in God's presence. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. That's what it means to believe in the gospel of Jesus, to have the Holy Spirit work on us. And that's what we see in verses 10 and 11 is God with us calling out, you can't do it, but I can. And I will. I will send my son. And you see it, yes, in shadow. Yes, with justice attached. And yet it is there. A reality of one who will come and one who will reveal how we might move forward. Propitiation, a debt paid and a relationship restored. The good news of the Lord Jesus. Sin gives us a low view of God, but God deserves a high view from us. And we just can't get there. I can't get there, let alone get you there. I'm 32 years old. Why would you even listen to me? <laughs> it's got to be the Lord. And each of you who have come, especially those members of Centennial, we are professors of the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess in the realities that bear out here. And yet my great fear over years of service here is that we have taken our eye off the ball. It's why we're doing the things we're doing, offense or not. We stand on the word of God and we must move forward in it. Have you taken your eye off the ball? What's your disquiet level? And have you ever considered that it's not you, that it's not the people around you, but that it's God himself yanking his people out of pollution into marvelous light. God is that good and that powerful and he does it every single day, guaranteed. God is good and he deserves a high view from us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are so good to us, a sinful people. God, I pray that you would work in us and that you would change our hearts. Not just so we can be better. Lord, that's not it. God, that we could be the ones you've called us to be, set apart in this world, that we might share this good news with others. God, help us. We need you as Father and Master. And so, Lord, help us. Even as we worship your name, we pray that you change us. In Jesus' name, amen.